that tune. It's the Song of the Volga Boatmen, sung by Leonid Karitanov and the Red Army Orchestra at Tchaikovsky Hall in Moscow in 1965. It's a folk song, originally sung by Russian barge haulers, or burlocks, working on the Volga River in the 19th century. These peasants, in teams, literally hauled barges down the river like beasts of burden, earning barely enough money to keep themselves and their families alive. Over time, the song came to stand in for the strength and the spirit of a Russian people laboring under an absolute monarchy and the capitalist system that propped it up. Each verse's repetitive yo, heave, ho, not only evoked the numbing, back-breaking labor that bound Russians to lives of misery and privation under the Tsar, but also for the capacity of the people to endure and fight for their own freedom. The Russian monarchy finally fell in the face of the successful 1917 revolution, giving way to a communist state that survived until December 8, 1991, when the Soviet Union dissolved. But well before 1917, there were periodic uprisings of peasants, intellectuals, and workers who hoped to make a better world. In 1648, Muscovites rebelled against the imposition of a salt tax. In 1698, 4,000 soldiers overthrew their commanders and marched to Moscow, demanding that the exiled Russian princess Sofia Alexeyevna be made Tsarina instead of 17-year-old Peter I. In 1771, rioters entered Red Square, broke into the Kremlin, and sacked a monastery. In 1825, 3,000 rebellious soldiers demanded a constitution and that the Grand Duke Constantine be put on the throne. Anti-imperial uprisings occurred periodically in Poland throughout the 19th century, as ordinary Poles demanded freedom from the Tsar's rule. Despite constant repression and policing, socialism, anarchism, and other radical ideologies spread like wildfire through the Russian Empire. The quest of the Russian people for democracy continues to this day, something that is worth remembering as the world musters support for the defense of Ukraine against Russian President Vladimir Putin's war machine. We don't usually do Russian history on this podcast, but when I saw Alison Epstein's new historical novel, Let the Dead Bury the Dead, just out this month from Penguin Random House, I knew I wanted to read a story about Russians fighting for freedom. It's a ripping tale about an officer coming home from the Napoleonic Wars to the man he loves, who just happens to be the Tsar's second son, a diffident louche fellow who suddenly grows a conscience. And it also stars a brave band of revolutionaries determined to set their country free, no matter what. And oh yes, there's a witch. This is Alison's second historical novel, and her first about Russia. 
They are serious works of historical fiction that you will love. But she's also funny. A fellow substacker, Allison writes a newsletter called Dirtbags Through the Ages, which is exactly what it sounds like. Posts have titles like That Don't Impress Me Much, about Empress Elizabeth of Russia, Double Double Toil and Thruple, The Sexual Antics of James I of England, and A Real Papal Pleaser, or The Horny and Heretical Adventures of 10th Century Bad Pope John Twelfth. I love historical fiction. As I say in this interview, it's what got me interested in history as a child, and I still turn to it for pleasure and to think through narrative strategies for the nonfiction books I write. So I knew I had to get Allison on the show. Join Allison and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, professor of history emeritus at the New School for Social Research, a contributing editor at Public Seminar, and the author of The Political Junkie Substack. This is episode 38, The Adventures of a Very Amateur Historian. Alison Epstein, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Alison, you've got a new novel coming out called Let the Dead Bury the Dead. It's a historical novel of early 19th century Russia. Why don't you tell our listeners the story? I'm describing it as an alternate history novel. So it's based loosely on things that did happen, but I am sort of taking a spin on history just so the professors of Russian history and the audience won't be incredibly angry if they do pick up the book. It is set in 1812, which is just after Napoleon's failed invasion of Russia. So very turbulent time for that country. The people are kind of reeling from what was just a land invasion of the capital. It was a very tough time to be there at that time. And so my book opens with his name is Sasha, and he's an imperial captain in the army just coming back from the war. He's trying to get home, trying to get to the man he loves, whose name is Felix, the Grand Duke Felix, the second son of the Tsar. He's just hoping to get back to a normal life. And on his way back to Felix, he runs into a mysterious woman lying in the snow, and he rescues her from, he thinks, dying of exposure in the cold. And so he brings her into Felix's house. Felix's He's, a, he's an interesting fellow, and so he's happy to bring in Sophia, which is her name, and kind of nurse her back to health. But as she becomes stronger, it becomes obvious that there's something not quite right about her. The entry of a, a mysterious stranger who may want something that Sasha is not altogether comfortable with. So things start to spiral from there. She starts whispering things in Felix's ear that start to lead toward things that are dangerously close to revolution. Starting to think about, you know, is, is the Tsar your father leaving the country in a way that is manageable? Are you actually furthering the evils of empire through your rule? Things that the, the Grand Duke of Russia is not used to hearing. Felix has never heard things like this before. And so he starts to get caught up in her spell of her revolutionary ideas. And at the same time, there is a popular revolution sort of brewing in St. Petersburg at the second plot of the novel. 
And so as the story goes along, it starts to follow what happens when Felix and Sophia start to intersect with this popular revolution. Sasha has to decide, do I follow the man that I love or do I follow the empire that I've sworn to serve? Things get increasingly dramatic. There may or may not be a little bit of folk magic involved. I'll leave that to the reader to decide. I won't spoil the ending, but it is a... There's lots, lots of adventure going on in the idea of do we overthrow the entirety of the Russian Empire? And if so, what are the consequences of that? And of course, readers will know that eventually the Russian Empire does get overthrown. And the 19th century is a really important time for that. I'm not a Russian historian myself, but I've read around a little bit in the field. And there is this sort of increasing popular movement throughout the 19th century, some of which is coming out of the pale, um, which is where the vast majority of Jews in the Russian Empire have been exiled to. And so there's a lot of socialism there, also Zionism by the end of the 19th century. And there's a sort of series of uprisings that culminate a hundred years later in 1917 in the overthrow of the Tsar. But tell us what you changed about Russian history. How does writing an alternative history get us to other insights about Russia and its past? Absolutely. It was really based on what you were saying. You know, there's so much going on at this period in Russia. And frankly, before it started with the peasant uprisings in the 16th, 17th centuries, this has been happening almost through the entire history of the Russian Empire. There's always been this tension between the popular desire to have some sort of control over your own life and also this really strong national identity of authoritarianism. And that's, that tension has always been there. But it's always shown up in slightly different ways. Earlier in the 16th, 17th centuries, like I said, it was peasant revolt, mostly agricultural. And then as there was the somewhat famous Decemberists revolt in the 1820s, which was more of a movement of the nobility and the military. So it's come kind of from different places. I've been writing primarily for a North American audience who is not necessarily familiar with all of those different strains. And so there were parts of all of them that I thought were extremely interesting and really kind of explained what that cycle of revolt looks like. And so I, I kind of selfishly didn't want to choose, do I want to write only a popular uprising? Do I want to write only an urban uprising? And I decided, okay, let's take some of the factors that have happened across time and kind of blend them into one story that, if not necessarily to the letter true, I do think there's parts of it that are spiritually true to understanding what's actually going on. I thought that was right. And I also thought there were some flashes of what listeners might also be obsessed with, that the younger brother is Felix. And there's an older brother, Anatoly, who has the ear of his father and who is very serious. And Felix is kind of louche and out of it, but he means well. And I started thinking about halfway through the novel, oh my God, this is William and Harry. <laughs> that was not intentional, but it is, yes, there is that dynamic as well, for sure. The the dutiful older son and then the younger son who was fully off, maybe overthrowing the monarchy, who knows? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it seemed like totally the last two or three years of William and Harry's life, as, you know, Anatoly keeps saying to Felix, get it together. You need to be serious. You need to take some responsibility. You need to marry a German princess. And Felix is like, no, you don't understand. There have to be changes. <laughs> I'm going to go on Oprah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so 
Tell us about the research you did for this novel, because obviously it's a very creative piece of work. It's a wonderfully queer piece of work, which I loved. So what is the research you did and how did you make the decisions about what would be pinned to fact and what you would play with? Yeah, this was a very interesting research process for me. I felt like I was starting a bit more from from square one than I usually do. Um, this is my second novel, and my first novel was set in a time and place that I knew a fair amount about coming into it. And this Imperial Russia is something that's been very interesting to me for a very long time, but it's not something that I formally studied. So I started really reading as widely and broadly as I could. I did a lot of, there are many books that purport to be a history of the thousand years of Russia, and you know, none of them can dive deeply into anything, but I tried to give myself a good foundation of context. And then I would progressively get more and more specific. I read just so many books about the architecture of St. Petersburg, which to listeners may or may not be interesting at all. But I started getting really into the specific world that my characters would have inhabited, not just the historical and political context, but also the cultural context. What kind of food would they have been able to find in this city? What kind of clothes would they have worn? What would the language have been like? That's the kind of historical research that I enjoy the most is the social and cultural research and the historical and political research for for this I like I was saying earlier was really just a grab bag of things that I thought were interesting to inform kind of the alternate set of events that I was developing that was really delightful for me because it gave me really 500 600 years of history for me to grab the things that I thought were the most interesting so from a from a fiction writer perspective I feel like I gave myself a very large sandbox to, to play in. You know, I just need to confess, I'm a huge fan of historical fiction. It's probably why I became a historian in the first place. My first author that I really followed was a woman named Jean Plady, who wrote about Henry VIII's six wives. And I read those books over and over again. And the idea that history had these stories to give us was so intriguing to me. But you're also the author of a substack called Dirtbags Through the Ages, which also offers alternative histories. So I wanted to start by asking you, what is your background in history? You seem to have a capacious knowledge of European history. Thank you for that. I wonder sometimes. My substack bio says I am an extremely amateur historian, which is how I self-identify. I studied English in college. And so I came at it from a storytelling lens very much. But I took a few classes in history while I was at at university. And every single one of them had that little nugget of the strangest story I've ever heard kind of pop up in the background. If listeners have, it's no surprise to you that the first class I took in history in college was medieval history focused on the papacy. And if you want to find a weird bunch of stories, look at medieval popes. It's just... (laughs) nonsense after nonsense after nonsense. And that's really what got me into researching history from that sort of what's a weird story I can tell perspective. I've had lots of people tell me that history has always been presented to them as this dull series of facts and dates and events. And if you look at it as look at this weird thing that happened, I find that so much more interesting and I will never tire of finding one more weird little factoid. They're really wonderful posts. And I want to urge my listeners to go to Dirtbags Through the Ages. We'll have a link for it in the show notes. 
there are people who poison other people like relentlessly, serially. <laughs> they light other people on fire. They burn shit down. There's a two part piece that's the most recent on James the First. I had no idea what an asshole James the First was until I read this. Sorry, he- <laughs> he's so messy. <laughs> Well, and how could he not be a mess? I mean, you know, if you're Mary Queen of Scots' son, and then you end up like getting adopted by the woman who cut her head off, how could you not be a mess, really? Wild. I mean, they were used to this kind of shit, you know, in the 16th century, nevertheless. So tell me how you decided to write about 19th century Russia when you had less background in it than you did in European history. Although I'm still holding to the fact that you have a capacious knowledge. I mean, (laughs) really, the details are tremendous. Well, thank you. I wish I had a more professional sounding answer for you for this question. But the honest answer is that I am a very proud theater fan. My first book was set in the world of the Elizabethan theater. And my second book actually also came about through my love of the theater, which is that I got extremely into a very niche musical called Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, which almost no one has heard of, but it is a Broadway musical retelling of a small little 100-page snippet of the middle of War and Peace. And so that was one summer of my life that just absolutely went out the door thinking about nothing but that. And as I am as I am wont to do, once I get really fixated on something, I dive into researching. I want to learn as much about it as I can. And from there, I just decided that this was going to be the period of my life where I wanted to learn everything about the Napoleonic Wars. And the more I read, the more I was sucked into this time period. It was a very non-academic entry point. But once I got in, I decided, no, this is the period I want to spend time in. It resonates with the modern day in a way that I wasn't expecting when I started to research it just kind of for fun. And it ended up being just a topic that I couldn't put it down, even though it started just as a kind of a, a whim Wikipedia hole. You began this research long before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which I want to bring up because it's been at the center of a number of controversies in publishing. There's an author who decided not to release her book about Russia because she felt it would be upsetting. I mean, I think she probably worried that she wasn't going to sell 2 million copies or something like that. But one of the things I've also noticed about Americans is that they have a tendency to move toward things that are in the news. Like I remember after 9-11, I thought I've never read the Quran and I should actually probably read the Quran. And I went on Amazon and it was sold out. Similarly, during the Hamilton phenomenon, I had to reread the Federalist Papers because I was doing some writing about that. And the Federalist Papers were sold out. So there is something about Americans where they actually have this desire to learn. And it seems to me like reading this novel, while, as you say, it's an alternative history, that people might be really drawn to it because it tells us something we need to know about Russia. And what would that thing be? That's a great question. And I'm, I'm so glad you asked. If this book is trying to say anything specific about what we need to know about Russia, I think for me, it's that there's always been this authoritarian drive there, but it's never been fully accepted in a lot of ways. This is not a book that's trying to apologize in any way for 
the Russian invasion of Ukraine or any other atrocities committed either by the Soviet Union or by Imperial Russia. This is by no means a pro-authoritarianism book in any sense. But I do I did want to think about what those forces have been that have always pushed back against that impulse. I think the general population's understanding of authoritarianism has always been either everyone agrees with it or nobody does. And I wanted to kind of problematize that notion a little bit, particularly in the context of Russia. Yes, there has always been this deep, powerful force of authoritarianism in Russia that has always been there since the foundation of the country, when it was still Kievan Rus. There's always been a really singular, powerful leader that can direct the empire in any way for good or for ill, and most often, frankly, for ill. But there has also always been a feeling that perhaps there could be another way to do this. That has not always succeeded. Very often it's led to things that are even as bad, if not worse, than what came before. But personally, I take hope in that, that there's always been a force saying perhaps this isn't the way to do it. And I think that's important to keep in mind just so we don't get bogged down in the in the hopelessness of this will never change. There have always been people that want it to change. Whether or not they've succeeded, they've always been there. So in the novel, you show that there's sort of several places that this authoritarianism comes from. One is the czar and the belief that the czar is the father and the people are the children and they need to be led and they need to be punished when they're wrong. The second place that authoritarianism is coming from is from within the popular movement, that there are some leaders within the movement who also have a kind of megalomaniac drive and a kind of charismatic leadership style that's authoritarianism. And then the third is Sophia, who is, and I don't think it's giving much away to say she's a Vila. She isn't quite human but she appears in human form and she represents a kind of devastating impulse that is a little more difficult to categorize. So how do these three forms of authoritarianism interact in the novel and how do they interact with a more democratic impulse that Felix and some of the other revolutionaries have? Yeah, no, I I love that you're Pointing out kind of those three those three strands, I did have those in mind as I was writing and thinking about, in particular, the authoritarianism from within the revolutionary movement. I think it's really important to consider, especially given the history of the Russian Revolution and what happened after it, that feeling of we have great hopes for this populist revolution, but it may end in something that is as as strict and uh, powerful as what came before it. I think we're seeing right now the aftermath of that. But Sophia was kind of an interesting third vector for me to throw in there. And I think of her role in the novel sort of as that unquantifiable chaos factor. And when I was putting her together, it to me, she is that that part of history that we can't control, that we can't explain, that we can't rationalized by saying this event naturally leads to this event, which leads to this event. The way I have always engaged with history is that you can put together the pieces of what's going to happen. You can lay out the imaginary futures for what might happen, but there's always that feeling that it could fall either way at either time. There needs to be some sort of 
whether it's chance or randomness or fate, what have you, that makes us go on one path and not the other. Maybe that's the fiction writer in me that's, you know, interested in that sort of more spiritual side of things. But for me, they all kind of come together as this is one force, the force of Tsarist authoritarianism. This is another force, the force of populism, for better, for worse. And then you add in this thing that is not human, but also incredibly human of chaos and fate and how does it mix together. And then that just, to me, gives a wonderful little melting pot of drama to think about both history and, and you know, real life in. Well, it certainly does, particularly as Sophia sort of uses her erotic power to influence people. I mean, you know, there are a variety of people in the novel who become captivated with her and do things that they might not otherwise do because the, the force of her magnetism and her eroticism is so great. And of course, early on in the novel, I couldn't help but think about Rasputin, who, yeah. <laughs> of course, makes his appearance in the royal family and is thought by the Tsarina to have a variety of powers that are healing powers, that are insightful, and so on and so forth. And Rasputin becomes this influence that is perhaps not as great politically as some of his critics believed it was, but it's he certainly becomes someone and something to sort of project a sense of the Tsar's weakness on. Let me ask you, the female characters in this book are fantastic. And you put women at the center of Russian history in a way that actually few historians do. Can you talk about that decision a little bit? Yes. First, I want to say I'm so glad that you have made the Sophia Rasputin connection, because the way I described this to my editor was, what if Rasputin was an extremely hot lesbian? And she let me do it. So. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but no, this is very much a conscious decision on my part to make it a good 50% of the characters in this story women. And frankly, it was the same impulse that made me make, I would round up to 60 to 70% of the people in the story are queer. And for me, that kind of came out of the same impulse that I take to writing all kinds of historical fiction is that the stories that are very often recorded in history are the stories of straight white men who are the ones who wrote down the stories themselves. And so it makes perfect sense that their history would center on those perspectives, particularly in an extremely patriarchal, extremely heteronormative society like Imperial Russia or frankly, modern day Russia. But that doesn't mean that women and queer folk were not around at that time doing things that influenced the shape of history. It just means that we don't always have records of what happened. And I think it's important as historical fiction writers in particular to start filling in some of those gaps and think, okay, we don't have the record for this, but we do know that these people existed. We know that they were important. What might they have done? And that's part of what I wanted to do through this book is just fill in some of the imaginative gaps that are not always filled in in the standard record. For me, I don't know whether you're going to think this is nuts or not, but in some ways, this novel sort of fits in what I would call the Bridgerton niche. I mean, the, the first season of Bridgerton, nobody really mentions it. 
that mm-hmm. there are all of these African descended people who are lords and ladies and, you know, own enormous estates and are the queen of England and so on, so on and so forth. And that doesn't even really get talked about until the Queen Charlotte series right. that sort of breaks Queen Charlotte off in which they actually then tackle how did this happen. But part of what I love about Bridgerton is it fantasizes a world in which literally you have racial equality and no one gives a shit, right? I mean, it's just nobody talks about it. And so similarly in your novel, there are all of these queer characters and all of this queer eros But nobody's like, oh, you know, we can't kiss until we go behind the curtain or anything like that. It's just sort of part of the action as if queerness were a normal part of the world, both in the palace and in the streets. So I think that's wonderful. Let me just ask you, to what extent were you able to unearth queer history in this period of Russia or did you really sort of figure it out on your own? To a very minor extent. It's, it's again, the sort of things that is not often written down in the records explicitly. And also the records are, the language barrier is a real issue. I have been teaching myself Russian for the past several years. It has not given me enough Russian to actually be able to read an archival document, unfortunately. But what I have been able to find is some records, mostly of people in the nobility who was more or less accepted. That person's, you know, a, a what we might have as a confirmed bachelor or certified a dilettante in some way or another. And those kind of records, you know, if you read between the lines, I'm happy to be the queer revisionist historian. A lot of it was my own imagination as well. I will admit to having taken somewhat of an expansive look at what this might have been like, but I, looking at queer history when it's not being treated necessarily as queer history, looking for queerness in history might be a better way of putting it. I think always Im- involves some imaginative leaps to interpret what's been written and what hasn't been written, but what's going unsaid. And personally, I'm of the opinion that I would rather assume someone is queer than assume they're not because there have been plenty of historians before me assuming that folks aren't queer. So if I'm changing the balance a little bit in in favor of queerness, I'm okay with that. Yeah, no, I'm okay with it too. And, and I would also say that kind of imaginativeness is in a sense no different from imagining the political transformation of someone like Felix right. who goes from being a dilettante, this rich guy who sometimes has sex with women, sometimes has sex with Sasha, his guard, but basically has no purpose in life other than being a second son. And then he acquires purpose. And that's something we don't really have much insight to in historical figures, particularly royalty. Right. What do you what do you do other than exist within the system? That's something that I've always found extremely interesting, especially for people who don't have any particular governing power. It, it is exactly what you said earlier about the William and Harry dilemma, which is what do you do when you're forced to uphold a system that has outlived you for hundreds and thousands of years, but the, your only role in it is not to shame or disrupt the system. I think that's a right. really tough position to put a person in and I've always been especially interested in the people who decide my one purpose actually is going to be disrupt the system 
what happens if I start thinking beyond what I've been taught and, you know, look, look outside. I think we're, we're always drawn to those kinds of stories, those, those outliers and people who are willing to think differently. Well, and we also see the harshness of the czarist authoritarianism too, because it's not just that Felix loses everything. It's by trying to persuade his brother and his father to make reforms, he comes very close to being thrown in prison and maybe executed. I mean, this is this is not a small thing to do, to just simply have a conversation about a political world that you might want to see emerge, right? Yeah, the, the stakes are very, very high for standing up for what you believe in in any, any context. And this is not an excuse for those who don't. It's just an observation that it it is not an easy thing to do. So I want to ask you, Allison, how did you decide to do this? I mean, you've got this wonderful substack that is hilariously funny, very irreverent. It's actually a very different voice from the novel. And I want to tell listeners that. How did you end up doing this? Ooh, I, I feel like I've never wanted to do anything else, really. This is a very stereotypical answer, but even when I was a, a kid in first or second grade and they'd ask what you wanted to do, I've always wanted to be a writer. It's all I've really ever wanted to do. I've been telling stories since I knew what stories were. And then it was really just a question of what kind of story was, was right. I tried all kinds of different genres, but nothing really stuck for me until historical fiction. Just being able to being able to look at the present through the past is something that I is really exciting to me. I think it, it helps me make sense of the world, what's going on now, what's happened. And there's just such a rich library of stories in history. I think for anybody who's interested in storytelling, it makes absolute sense that history would start to draw you in that direction. And in Dirtbags Through the Ages, you tell stories from the past that are set in very different societies with very different roles, and you tell them in a present vernacular. How did you decide to do that? I frankly was looking for a way to be present on social media as an author. That was really the genesis of it. I had someone ask me, do you make an author newsletter? And I said, everybody has an author newsletter. When you talk about what you're working on, how hard revisions are, no one wants to subscribe to another author newsletter. I do subscribe to many and they're very good, but I didn't think I had anything new to add to that conversation. And so I asked some friends, what do you think I could do that would be useful? And I, I had one, one dear friend of mine who said, what about just some of those dumb historical stories that you love so much? And I, I got really excited about that. I thought it would be a lot of fun to use this newsletter as a, as a way to share. Here's a weird thing I learned. Can you believe how weird this is? And that truly is how it started. It was just a fun little project for me to share what I was learning and maybe sometimes talk about my books a little bit. And I'm just absolutely delighted I, that anybody at all has enjoyed it, let alone as many people as have. I've always said if 10 people subscribe and laugh, I would be happy, but it's gotten much bigger than that. Well, and you got noticed by Substack, I guess, because your numbers were bouncing or something like that. And they advertised you, which is how I found the newsletter yes. um, and which is how I learned about the book. But the, the title, Dirtbags Through the Ages, is some of the most classic branding I've ever <laughs> heard of. How did you decide to go out on a limb with that? Yeah, 
Oh, it's it's funny that the the idea of historical dirtbags actually came from my literary agent when we were trying to sell my first book, which was about the Elizabethan poet Christopher Marlowe. And she described the way I had written him as, this is dirtbag Marlowe. He's just a kind of modern dumbass who's doing his best, but like not doing a great job at it. And I just loved that description so much that I was like, okay, what other dirtbags can I find around here? And that's truly what I've been looking for is just who's a jerk or like who is making the dumbest decisions you've ever seen over the past five centuries. And those have always been my criteria for what makes a good dirtbag is does this person suck? But do they suck in a way that's kind of like you can't believe how how out there it is. Yeah, like that nun that kept setting people on fire, which, you know, I recommend (laughs) to my listeners because everywhere this nun goes and they lock her up and then all of a sudden a fire breaks out and she she escapes. Um, So look for that one. opera singing nun who lights things on fire. It's quite a story. It's quite the story. (laughs) Absolutely. So, Allison, this is the final question that I ask all my guests which is why should our listeners read this book now? Yeah. Um, well, I hope you, if you read it now, it's because partly you're, you're in the mood for a, a good story with plenty of drama. That's always what I hope for my books. But as we were saying earlier, I do think a lot of folks are drawn to, to stories that are relevant to what's going on in the news now. And I do hope that readers who pick up this book might be inspired to think about the hundreds of years of history that have gone into the conflict that we're seeing in Ukraine right now and what might have informed that just to understand. I think it's important for us in a Western context to understand what's going on and as much of the background as we can. And as I said earlier, again, I, I also hope that readers who come to this now might also find something hopeful in that kind of a story that we are in a, in a dark authoritarian moment in a, in a lot of different contexts, but there have always been people who want it to be different. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Why Now on your favorite podcast platform. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes, to listen to more episodes, or to leave a comment. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. Share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. And follow me on Twitter at Tenured Radical, that's capital T, capital R, or at my website, clairepotter.com. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. That's all for now. See you next time.